Wednesday night, saints, it's good to see you. I'm Pastor Mark, and since September 1st, 2019, I am uh, the 50 and above pastor here at Grace Covenant Church. Kind of part-time right now, but come next March, if you all pray diligently for me, and Deb uh, will be full-time. And uh, so we're, we're thrilled to be here. Uh, Pastor Jim asked those of us sharing at the 715 uh, this month to share on Thankful 2. And so my topic is the heart of thanksgiving. And I'm taking uh, the passage from Psalm 107. I'll be reading from the ESV. And you can read along, but this is condensed. And uh, condensed from the first 32 verses. And we're, we're going to look at that. And I'm going to read and try to even condense it even more, hopefully. Uh, Psalm 107, verses 1 through 32 condensed. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom he has redeemed from trouble. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to no, no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Some said in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. And they, for they had rebelled against the words of God and had spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we worship you tonight. I thank you for this beautiful group of people who have gathered here in your name on Wednesday night. I pray, Lord, by the power and the life of the Holy Spirit, come and fill us, I pray. Come, come and fill each of us, Father. And Lord, fill us this month with a new sense of thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said. Imagine... For a moment, if a virulent influenza swept through the northern Virginia region, a terrible type of plague, 
And in its wake, one half, one half of the population of this entire region were lost, died. One half of Grace Covenant's membership, gone. Husbands, wives, children, parents must be buried. Few homes are left untouched. An entire community in mourning. My question is this, how would we respond? Would you continue to attend church and sing and worship him? Would the surviving staff continue the vision and carry on the fight? In such a terrible circumstance, would we follow the exhortation from 1 Thessalonians 5.18 to give thanks in all circumstances? Would we do that? There's a historic example of a group of Christian people who did just this. On November 11th, 1620, a British ship named the Mayflower anchored near shore of what today is Provincetown, Massachusetts. Aboard were 102 people that their leader had dubbed pilgrims, and they had little clue as to the harsh winters of New England. And by the following spring, 50 of them, nearly half their numbers, had died. Men, women, and children. It's been said that they dug seven times more graves than they built huts. And yet, the following November of 1621, they did a remarkable thing. They set aside a day to give thanks to God. They had met some new Indian friends who had taught them how to plant corn and they had reaped a harvest. And they said, we need to set aside a day to give thanks. They didn't continue it every year after that, but later on our presidents, uh, starting with Lincoln, and then later on it was, uh, starting with Lincoln, it became a holiday, regular holiday, and then it's been, um, it's been continuing since. In history, there's hardly a better circumstance, or excuse me, hardly a better example of people giving godly Christian thanksgiving in dire circumstances. The scriptures, of course, are filled with a call to a radical, a radical thanksgiving. In the Psalms alone, there are 37 exhortations or examples of thanksgiving throughout the Psalms. New Testament writers, especially Paul, echo the same. Ephesians 5, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father. Colossians 3:17. And whatever you do in word or deed and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the to God the Father through him. And then that challenging one I mentioned earlier, 1 Thessalonians 5:18. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's amazing passages, aren't they? Considering our call to be thankful, even in times of difficulty, it's easy to see that the heart of Christian thanksgiving isn't founded on a Pollyannish type of naivete. It's not something born of, of a vague legalistic guilt. It's not mere lip service or a perfunctory religious function. You know, well, I'll give thanks. Rather, 
in the face of, of this type of a call and the examples that we've seen, we should ask ourselves, what was it that those first century apostles and the great saints of history had knew? What did they know that allowed them to give thanks in the midst of even deprivation and death? And I want us to look at a few of those foundations right now here in Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord. That's the call. And if you look at this psalm, it's really laid out in uh, uh, two in parallelisms all the way through. And it was probably sung uh, in the temple. And one would sing, and I'll give you an example. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then the other side would sing, or the other part of the choir would sing, for his steadfast love endures forever. We could do this sometime. It would be really cool. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom he has redeemed from trouble. You see the echoes back and forth. Some wandered in desert places, finding no city to dwell in. And so on and so forth. Um, A wonderful way to recount history, put it to song, and to memorize it. Uh, Amazing stuff. So what is the heart of thanksgiving? I think we find three things in here. First, God's greatness. We need a sense of God's greatness. Secondly, we need a sense of God's goodness. Goodness. You know, we say that. God is good. He really is. He's good. And lastly, God's mercy. So God's greatness, his goodness, and his mercy. Let's look at God's greatness. Verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from what? Trouble. Whom he has redeemed from trouble. Now, we Christians, especially we charismatics, we believe in giving thanks and we, and we praise the Lord. And you guys, you know, you know, Debbie and I have been away for a long time. And uh, we've been away longer than some of you have been alive. Um, and, that's, and if you look at me, you, you, you say, yeah, I can understand that, yeah. Um, my brother used to try to get me to dye my hair. I said, no, I want people to see what, what the world's done to me. Uh, I re- no, I want them to know what I've been through. <laughs> Me and Charles, you know, and the widow. <laughs> um, we know how to give thanks, and we do it well, and we give thanks for victories, and we should. I don't, I mean, we gave thanks this last Sunday at my little church that I'm still pastoring until next year. We gave thanks for a victory over cancer. In a woman's body, she went for one procedure, and they, they had to do some scans and whatnot, and they, that doctor found out that there was no cancer, and, they, and sent it to her oncologist, and all the tumors are gone. So we gave thanks. We've had a lot of victories over cancer in this church. It's really amazing. But we're also called to give thanks in all things, not thanks for all things. There's a lot of things that come that we don't give thanks And let me tell you something. With death, we fight death tooth and nail. Amen? We fight sickness tooth and nail. I pray for everybody I can can if they're sick. I want to pray for them and tell them, if you don't get healed, it's my fault, not yours. But we, we fight against this. But when we have to go through something and it doesn't lift, we give thanks anyway. We give thanks in the circumstance. And... One of, the, one of the things that, what, uh, so these, the, the, the psalmist lists a number of troubles. I'm trying to check my time. He lists a number of troubles, and I'm in a trouble right now because I have too many notes. 
compared to that. So if I start sounding like Porky Pig here in a minute, you know what's going on. You know, going through this. I'm going to go fast. He lists four kinds of trouble that people are in. They were exiles and refuge, refugees. We call them refugees today. They were exiles. They wandered in desert places. They had no way to a city to dwell in. Can you imagine not having a place, not having a city, not, not just a home, but not even a city, not a people? And they, their soul fainted within them. There were prisoners. They sat in darkness. Some were prisoners. They were waiting for death. Their hearts were bowed down. They were in hard labor. They had none to help. They were locked up and they were doomed. Some were addicted. Uh, that word fools in the scripture, this is in verses 17 through 21, uh, they were self-destructive. They were in a different type of prison, an internal prison. Some of us have been in that type of prison where internally you've gone haywire and you can't escape the prison of addiction. And then lastly, there were some that were involved in natural disasters. Uh, the sailors went out on the, on the uh, ocean and they were on the, uh, the, the uh, ship and they were like drunken men reeling back and forth, and they were at their wit's end, and they gave up. Now, how do troubles reveal God's greatness? Well, troubles, first of all, bring us back to God. You know, the psalmist said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Um, in this fallen world, and since we still fight and have to consider dead a fallen nature, and we have to overcome that, that temptation, Sometimes afflictions bring us back to God. We get into trouble and the Lord draws us back to himself. Some people are not seeking God at all. They see no reason to seek God. They get in trouble. You begin to pray for people. We started praying for someone recently and, and the person who asked us to pray came and said, oh, it's really gotten bad. I said, well, that sounds good. You don't think that. Uh, one person we begin to pray for, he was, he's a cynic. He's a young man who's an absolute cynic, has no, sees no need for God, and is, he just kind of scoffs at it. But a lot of his friends are Christians, and we're praying for him. And he's, he began to have panic attacks. And, and he is absolutely at his wit's end. For the first time, they are beginning to have hope that he's open to have prayer. So God uses trouble to bring us, to uh, draw us back to himself. We were created to live near God. We were created to be filled with his life and with his spirit. And when we separate from him, our souls begin to die. It happens instantly. And people out there, are, they're dying. And they don't know. And sometimes we start praying for them. We pray for our country. And sometimes trouble comes. We say, oh, Lord, get rid of the trouble. Maybe not. Save the people in the midst of the trouble. Draw them to yourself through the trouble. Amen. Troubles come to, to remind us that God is sovereign, that he rules over all things. He and he alone is in control. In our fallen world, we, many of us suffer the illusion that we are in control. You know, I have a friend, and his greatest fear was to be not in control, and he began to suffer panic, panic, panic attacks. Because if you believe that you have to be in control, and you're in this particular world, and you're just a small human being, there's a real problem there, isn't there? There's so many things that can go bad, so many things that can go wrong. We need an almighty, sovereign God. Jesus said that a, a, a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground unless the heavenly Father okays it. <laughs> he says the hairs of your head are numbered. 
And for some of us, that calculation is changing continually. It's going down. Um, Troubles reveal God's great power. Isn't it interesting that in these passages, all of these people somehow innately knew that no matter how difficult the situation, the sea was rising up. And if you've ever seen, you can go to YouTube or wherever and see uh, the sea. Uh, if, and, and some of these great ships, the sea can become like a mountain in, it, in the waves. And these sailors were at their wit's end, but somehow they had an innate sense that God was more powerful than what they were experiencing. Amen? And uh, uh, so, so we, we get a sense of God's power when we go through trouble. You remember the disciples. They were in the boat. Jesus was asleep. You've heard this many times. And there's this massive storm that hits. And some of them were sailors. And they were saying they were fishermen. And they, were, they ran boats their whole life. And they were in despair. And they wake him up and say, Master, don't you care that we were perishing? They're scared to death. They're at their wit's end. And Jesus stands up, rebukes them. Where's your faith? Well, you know, we don't have any right now, Lord. I mean, that's, that's why we're waking you up. And uh, a little help, a little help here. <laughs> a little help here, Lord. You ever do that? A little help here. Uh, and he stands up and he goes, be still. Boom. Boat's not rocking. They're dripping. And it says they were now more afraid of him than the storm. Which is a, the correct priority, by the way. Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill the body. Fear God Almighty. Uh, that's a whole different message right there. Um, so we rejoice in victories. Uh, but we need to understand that God is great, and he is a great God over all things, not just the victories. And I had to help my family bury six of our family members, including uh, uh, my brother's son, and then 30 days later to the day, his granddaughter. And then less than a year and a half later, him. And I had to help them through this. And uh, I was quite proud of them because they gave thanks in the midst of that. I remember my brother's wife was standing there, and there, were, there was a line of people. He had impacted a lot of people's lives, and it was a room at least this big. They went out along that wall and then all the way out into the parking lot. And she was standing there, and one lady said, um, Do you still believe? And she said, Yes, now more than ever. And uh, I was quite proud of them, but the Lord prepared me for that because I've been learning some of these things that we have to, that he's not simply the God of the victories, but he's the God of all things. Amen? Amazing stuff. Uh, There was a, I read about uh, a family that went to one of the South American countries and they were in a rural situation with a village of people they were trying to win, of people who had not been reached for Christ, and they were getting nowhere. They couldn't, the people wouldn't open their hearts to the gospel. And then things got worse. One of them got sick. And they, of course, they're praying and trusting, and the sickness got worse, and the sickness got worse, and their loved one died. And they went through this process, and when when it was over with, the village began to come to them and say, teach us about Jesus. And they said, what changed? What changed your mind? Why are you now open? And they said, we watched how you handled 
death. And when we have someone die, you know, we have no hope. And we mourn very differently. And you mourn as people that have hope. Amen? Didn't get the victory in that situation. And that's rare. We get the victory most of the time, don't we? And, but amazing, amazing stuff. Um, second, God's goodness. Okay, God's goodness. Give thanks to the Lord, verse 1, for he is what? He's great, but he's also good. His steadfast love endures forever. We take these things for granted, but that just blows me away. Debbie said to me one time, <laughs> we were going through a rough patch, and she said, what if God isn't good? What if we got to heaven and he's just, you know, I thought, I was, well, we're in trouble then. <laughs> you know, it's like Superman wants these, these guys like Superman came down, but they weren't nice like Superman, and they started throwing human beings up in the air and stuff like that. But, of course, we know God is good, but his steadfast love endures forever. It's not going to stop. Um, in troubles, people question God's power, justice. They tr- question his goodness. Uh, but he is good, and he's promised that he's going to stay good, and it's going to be everlasting. Um, in, in the midst of this trouble, the end refrain is this. He delivered them from their distress. Each one of them, all four groups in that psalm, they were in different types of situations. Some of them were refugees, and usually when you're a refugee, it's not your fault, Right? We've seen this recently with Syria. We've seen this with other countries. People are, are driven out of their nation through violence and different things. Um, same thing with a storm. It's not your fault, unless you're Jonah. Have you ever felt like Jonah? I've felt like that on occasion. Say, throw me out. Let's see what happens. Uh, could get better here, really, really real fast. But um, suffering and why God permits suffering is for another time. But what did those in distress do to earn their deliverance. This, was, this is really amazing. What did they do to get God to use his great power to overcome the situation that they were in? It's, it's, it happens four times in verses 4, 13, 19, and 28. And it's this. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. They cried. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. The word cried there, you know, it's got the idea of a shriek. It's actually describing the cry of an infant. Like a baby beginning to cry out. Uh, When Debbie, we had our first baby, I said, you know, I'm not like the fathers today. But I was not like my dad either. But, you know, we were trying. And I said, I'll I'll get up with you in the night and I'll help you. And the baby cried. I got up and I helped her. Next night I sat up. And I asked if she needed anything. The third night, I took the pillow and I put it around my head. And I thought, that is the most god-awful sound I've ever heard in my life. At 3 a.m. in the morning, it's like my respect for her just soared, you know. My respect for myself, you know, kind of went down like that. Us men have that happen a lot. Um... So they cried, and that was it. I hear people say, you know, I'm not sure my mom or dad went to heaven. You know, I prayed for them for years, and I don't know if they say, prayed all the precise words. He hears our sighs. 
Amen. He hears our groans. And here's why. It's being widely reported now by researchers that hormones in the body of a new mother change. And they make her hearing ultra-sensitive to the sounds of her baby. She, these hormones are released. Here's another one. This is a new one. I didn't know this one. According to Scientific American, and it's reported in other medical journals as well, researchers have now discovered that cells, the cells from the mother's newborn baby have been found in the mother's body, in various parts of her body, including her brain. The baby's cells are in here. So, guys, that's one of the reasons we're not quite as good. We don't have those cells. We don't have that hormone. So, it cut me a little bit of slack on putting the pillow over my head. But think about that in light of this passage from Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget... Even that mother with the cells in her brain may forget, but the Lord says this, yet I will not forget you. He hears. They're out there on the ocean, waves, they just start crying. And the Lord says, angels, save them. What a good God. Thirdly, his mercy, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Would you say that? Redeemed. Redeemed. The word redeemed is amazing. It's pregnant with meaning. You remember in the Egyptian oppression, Israel was in Egypt. They had been oppressed now for some 400 years, long after Joseph had passed from the scene. A Pharaoh rose up. And because of the racial and the religious, religious prejudice, fueled by fear and jealousy, they had put them to hard labor and made them slaves. And immediately after the exodus in which God had saved them from 400 years, America hasn't been in existence for 400 years, 400 years of slavery, he began to teach them about this idea of redemption and about uh, what it meant. Redemption, it, it has the idea of purchasing back or to ransom something or to liberate someone from captivity or bondage. And then Moses began to teach them from the law as God taught him about uh, redeeming your relatives, and redeeming those who are nearby. And that's where this whole idea of the kinsman redeemer came from. And you remember in the story of Ruth and Boaz, in the, in the book of Ruth, Ruth has come back with her mother who is an Israelite, but she is an immigrant. She's coming from another country. She's a foreigner. And uh, Boaz finds out about her, and he finds out about what a godly woman she is, and he uses this law called the kinsman redeemer, and he redeems her and takes her to himself. This is, this is amazing stuff, isn't it? And this is, this is the whole idea of redeemer. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You say, well, Pastor Mark, I wasn't in one of those groups. I've never been on the ocean and in a storm and never been in a prison. But listen, the gospel starting point for us is our sinfulness, our bondage of sin. I'm going to jump over, and I'm just going to jump over a whole section there. Um, if we're going to value something, we have to understand its cost. Some of you, do anybody here watch the 
show, Antiques Road Show. I don't watch it. It's a good show, and I can see why people are interested in it. My soul begins to die after a few moments, but... Um, you know, I don't know why. Debbie likes it sometimes, but it's about five minutes, ten minutes, death begins to set in. And my will to live just ebbs right out. But people bring all sorts of stuff, and you know, they, they, most of them don't get on television. If they're on TV, you know it's a good thing, right? I mean, it's not going to say, well, this, uh, this means nothing. This, this is, you, know, this is, you might as well throw this away as you leave. We've got a dumpster out here. You know. But to know the value of a thing, we, we, not, we need to know its cost. We understand the value. Many of us, we don't really value redemption, and we can't when we first start out. We've got to learn this. But we weren't redeemed. Listen, folks, we were not redeemed from a time management problem. We weren't redeemed from a mild case of fibbing. Or I was a little bit late every once in a while. Uh, We were redeemed for much more serious things. We know the value of our salvation by the price that was paid for it. We were in so much trouble that the payment required this. It required the most valuable thing in the cosmos. And if there are other cosmoses, those two. It was at the cost of the Father's only begotten Son. I will say this. There is a gospel that a lot of people preach, and, it just, it, and it's good as far as it goes. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not where the Bible starts. Now, that's a good thing. That's where it's headed. That's where it's going to go. But you can't just give somebody a tract with that. Because people buy in and they say, yeah, I'll take that. And they, they say, I want a wonderful life. I want, and, and so they sign on and as soon as life gets difficult, instead of being thankful, they become bitter. You know, if you're in a swimming pool and the EMTs jerk you out and begin to uh, press on your chest and begin to blow into your mouth and you were just enjoying a pina colada or something, you know, you go, what in the world? You wouldn't want to sue them. And this is what we do sometimes. We say, Bring you into the church, we're going to make you a disciple, and, and people get sour, and they get upset, and they get bitter, and something bad happens, and hey, I thought you said God had a wonderful plan for my life. That's not where the gospel starts. The gospel starts, for God so loved the, only, the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's the value that was paid. We were condemned, I'll just say it like this, we were, we were the exiles. We were without a people. We were without a country. We were in a prison of our own sin. We were on the portals of the chambers of death and hell. We were enslaved to the addiction of ego and anger and religious Phariseeism, workaholism, selfishness, pride, self-sufficiency, on and on it goes. We would and could still be destroyed by storms or earthquakes or natural disasters if it wasn't for the goodness and the greatness of of our dear Lord who's watching out for us every second. Because he ransomed us at the cost of the blood of his own son, our lives are no longer our own. And this is what the pilgrims believed. This is what they actually believed. And so they believed that God had called them to plant a new city, a new place, a new, a new country, where people could worship from Scripture according to the dictates of their conscience. 
And they stayed on that mission despite the fact of losing half their numbers. They knew that their lives were not their own. The heart of thanksgiving begins with this profound sense of a great and good God and of the sheer mercy that comes in the idea of redemption. Because of our rebellion against God's good laws, we were in his prison. And yet he broke into his own prison and broke those bars and not only brought us out, he didn't just send us on our way, he brought us out and said, I'm going to bring you to the palace. And now you are my sons, you are my daughters, you are my children. What's our response? To complain, to be discontent, to forget of the good things he's done for us. No, we're to walk and live in this deep, profound sense of gratitude and live lives marked with heartfelt thanksgiving. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Can we give him some thanks? Amen. Amen. Father, uh, let this be the greatest thanksgiving we've ever experienced. As we grow older, our our, uh, holidays, the nostalgia can begin to fade. But if we understand the Christian nature of these holidays, they become more and more and more rich. That we have a, a God to be thankful to. We have a Savior who was born, who died for us. And if there's an empty place around the table, he's coming back for all of us. And we're going to have a reunion forever. Lord, bless this people tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.